I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Getter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Getter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. North Dakota no-tiller Gabe Brown is one of the pioneers of today's regenerative ag movement. In the last couple of years, he wrote the book Dirt to Soil, in which he described his experience of adopting regenerative techniques on his farm. He was featured in the documentary Kiss the Ground, and he co-founded Understanding Ag and the Soil Health Academy. Brown travels extensively, consulting with farmers across the country on how they can be better stewards of the land and be more profitable while doing it. On February 25, 2021, Brown testified before the House Agriculture Committee in Congress about regenerative ag practices, where he talked about ways agriculture can be part of the climate solution. Join us as Brown discusses that experience and shares his thoughts on how government programs could be designed so as to allow farmers to adopt regenerative practices more easily rather than hinder their efforts, how these practices can unlock biological functions in the soil, while he's not advocating farmers sell their carbon credits yet, and much more. So... You were invited to testify, as you said, before the House Agriculture Committee and Congress about regenerative ag practices Mm -hmm. and their impact on the economy and the climate. And while you shared a lot of excellent concepts and examples of regenerative ag, the format of the proceedings, I gather, kind of got in the way of actually getting your message across in a cohesive Mm -hmm. way. And so I'd love for you to share what your experience was like that day and then also tell us what was missed. Thank you. Yeah, I get asked to testify now and again, and I usually say no, because I just don't think it's a wise use of my time. But in this case, I decided, okay, we'll we'll give it a shot and see if we can make a difference. I thought there was some genuine interest in moving and learning what regenerative ag is about and maybe moving the needle a bit that way. And also, I really thought it was important to drive home the point that regenerative agriculture can certainly be part of the climate solution. You know, we've done enough testing to understand that when the principles of soil health are adopted, we're able to store significantly more carbon in the soil. And that's good not only from the standpoint of climate change, but it's certainly good for farm and ranch profitability. And I don't think that policymakers really realize that. They don't give livestock its due, and not only livestock, but all of agriculture, and in particular livestock. And so I wanted to make that point. And, you know, they only gave me five minutes to to read my statement, which I did. And then it was Q&A for literally over four hours. But in my mind, they missed the opportunity to come together because I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Everybody should agree that more farm profitability is a good thing. They should certainly agree that that holding nutrients on a farm rather than seeing it go down the watershed is a good thing. Mm -hmm. The nutrients are there for the farmer or rancher the next crop season and they don't pollute the watershed. That'd be a good thing. They should certainly agree that we've proven now that that food grown and raised in regenerative soils in and on regenerative soils is higher in nutrient density. That's good for all human health. With the COVID pandemic going on, they need to realize that those who are unfortunately succumbing to it often have a depressed immune system. That's directly related to gut health. What's better for the health of the microbes in our body 
than nutrient-dense food, and we can produce that. So they missed an opportunity to really realize, as the House Ag Committee, they play a major role in determining the direction of agriculture in the United States. Well, why not come together for the good of all? And instead, it was just kind of bickering back and forth about their own special projects. And I have to say, I was a bit taken aback by just the lack of understanding of not all, but the majority of those House members that they repeatedly told me over and over again what a good job farmers and ranchers are doing. And don't get me wrong, there are many that are doing an excellent job. But all you have to do is fly over this country, and I'm on 200 plus flights a year, I'm flying over it all the time, and look at the degradation that's taking place. You know, our rivers are no longer blue, they're chocolate, and, and the bare soil and the erosion that's taking place, it's not good. So I, I did get the opportunity to call a few of them out on that, and I'm not embarrassed to do so because they just don't understand what's really taking place. And so I think it was a missed opportunity. Hopefully, I was able to stir a little thought in a few of them, and, and, and uh, it, there'll be some good that comes out of it. We'll see. Yeah. Do you have any sense of uh, what the end game was for this particular session in Congress? Well, obviously, with the current administration and the, the chairman of the House Ag Committee working with President Biden, the Democratic agenda is to to move forward pieces of legislation that will dictate uh, certain actions be taken. And I don't know what those are. You know, obviously, they're, they're talking about so-called green energy, etc. I just wanted to do my part and show them that farmers and ranchers have the ability to make a positive difference. And, and, as I said, take carbon out of the atmosphere, put it in the soil. I don't think that's at all what they expected me to say. I really think they expected me to say that farmers and ranchers need more money invested. And there was several policymakers, that, that representatives who talked about putting more money into agriculture for certain things. And I'm like, Agriculture isn't looking for a handout. We don't need more subsidies. That's not a good thing, in my opinion. We need to turn farmers and ranchers loose doing what they do best, and that is taking care of the resource. And if they would work with us instead of against us, if they would allow us to have more diversity on our farms and ranches and adopt regenerative practices uh, more easily, more readily, that would be a good thing, not just getting checks. That's not what it's about. Yeah, right. Yeah, I did watch some of the testimony and they did not seem to get the point. You you definitely said several times you were talking about government programs and how they need to be actually thoughtful and have the right outcomes in mind. So would you just share with everybody what are your thoughts on how we go about making it possible for all farmers to adopt regenerative practices and what role do you see the government programs as having? Yeah, uh, certainly. That's a good question. And what I would envision and my partners at Understanding Ag would envision is that government programs are a step in the right direction they could be to get people moving down the regenerative path. I'm not opposed if they want to cost share, cover crops, something like that to get people started, but they should not become an entitlement. You know, so often farmers will adopt those practices as long as the government pays for part of them. But the minute that program is rescinded, taken away, then those practices stop. And I said repeatedly over and over in my testimony, it's about education. You know, you don't know what you don't know. Yet, so often what we see as we go all across the country consulting is nobody has taught the farmers, ranchers, how the nutrient cycle works, how soil really functions. You know, we, we did a series of soil tests to determine the amount of nutrients 
on over 100 farms and ranches around the United States. Would you believe every single farm and ranch that we tested had, I'm gonna use this word kind of sparingly, but copious amounts of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, trace minerals. We did not find a single farmer ranch that was deficient. Oh. So there's plenty of nutrients, but what's lacking is the biology to make those nutrients available. Well, farmers and ranchers are not being taught things like that. So I was pounding on the educational aspect. That's what's lacking. And I would really like to see agencies such as NRCS being used as a conduit for that education to educate farmers and ranchers how they can work with nature and keep money in their pockets and increase profitability. That would be good, certainly not only for the farmer and rancher, but also for society because we could significantly cut back on the cost of farm programs. That was definitely a message that I took away from your testimony very strongly. I mean, you were definitely saying that uh, NRCS and, and extension uh, mm -hmm. could have a very big role. And so how big of a shift do you see that being from what they're doing now? Well, it's rather a 180 because, and, and I don't want to sound, make it sound like I'm beating up on the government. You know, there's a lot of great people who work for NRCS and in other agencies and government that are trying to do the right thing, but their hands are tied here. NRCS is trying to educate and move these practices forward, but then you have the Farm Service Agency and Risk Management Agency saying, oh no, you know, we got to limit the use of cover crops. There's got to be termination dates and, and putting all these stipulations on. And then you have with revenue insurance, basically that is almost making sure that the majority of farmers and ranchers are only planting those few commodities. Well, that just drives the price lower and lower because of oversupply. You know, it just doesn't make sense, that whole model. Yeah, we need diversity on the landscape. We need to be integrating animals back onto the landscape. We need a wide variety of different cash crops. You know, last time I looked, 42% of corn grown in the United States is going for ethanol production. That just does not make sense. In no way, shape, or form is that a good thing, mm. you know? And, and I'm not bashing ethanol, but... We can't have all our eggs in one basket, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of times I go into the I states and all I talk about is corn and soybeans. They won't even consider growing another crop. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that do ecologically to their land? And then think of it this way, their whole income is based off those two commodities. Mm -hmm. Boy, that, that's just poor business. You know, you need diversity. And, and I tell people on our ranch, we grow a dozen different cash crops every year. Plus we got all these different species of livestock. That makes me very resilient. I'm certainly not worried about what the price of corn will do because I've got a lot of other crops to rely on also. Yeah. And uh, how do you get around, you know, the infrastructure issues, which I think is one reason people uh, sort of limit their operations sometimes because, you know, there isn't an elevator that handles X, Y, or Z. Or yeah, and, and I tell them, for instance, uh, I grow a crop of, of cereal rye, winter triticale, forage winter wheat, and hairy vetch, and then I market it as seed. Well, that particular crop, my average for the last 13 years, my average net profit per acre is $979. Per acre net profit with zero government subsidies. I refuse to take part in government programs. Okay, so they're talking about their corn crops and oh, they might make $10 an acre, I think was the average last year. Fine. Okay, but now can I raise 10,000 acres of that crop and sell it? No, but I can certainly raise enough that it's an important part of my, my income every year. The fact of the matter though is you have to become a marketer and a business person. Yeah. Most farmers and ranchers, they're very good at production, but they're lousy business people. I'm sorry, I'm, but you need to learn to market. My son who operates our ranch now will tell you he spends 50% of his time marketing, mm. okay? 
Mm -hmm. uh, I have a good friend in Kansas who told me a story. Uh, he's a young farmer, and he said he made over 100 phone calls to finally find the find the grain terminal that would give him the price he wanted for his particular crop. He said, yeah, that took a lot of time, but that one phone call netted him an additional $200,000 in profit. Oh. You can make a lot of phone calls for that. <laughs> and, and so I, I have a real hard time feeling sorry for people who don't want to do what it takes to become good business people. Mm hmm. Yeah. And so that particular crop that you were just talking about. So you're marketing that as a as a cover crop seed blend and you're selling it. It, it is for seed, uh, particularly for livestock producers to either grow for grazing or for feed. And there's a myriad of different opportunities like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I could. One of the benefits I have is uh, as I travel around a lot and I get to be on literally hundreds of farms and ranches every year. And I see how those who really want to go down this path and what they're doing to market. I mean, they're growing a myriad of different cash crops, you know, converting them to to serious dollars. You know, I know of uh, one producer who is now taking his corn and and with it, he's getting $586 a bushel for his corn crop, making it into bourbon. Okay, <laughs> so it, it's a matter of what do you want to do? And, and then he's making 200 and some dollars a bushel, converting it into tortillas. You know, they, why do we want to just produce bulk commodities when you can add value? And people say, oh, but that's too much work. Well, you want to make money or not? <laughs> Plain and simple. Yeah, right. It's that adding your own human capital, mm -hmm. which makes the difference sometimes. Yep. Yeah. So you had mentioned in your um, testimony that you did take advantage of EQIP and CSP programs mm -hmm. many years ago when you were first adopting some conservation practices. Um, how were those programs integral to your journey of transitioning to regenerative ag? Yeah, great question. And I, and I do tell everyone that uh, I want to make it known I did take part in those programs, EQIP and CSP, and they really started me down the path for for able to integrate livestock on their operation in particular, a well, uh, the ability to dig and pay for cost share on a well, and then water development into the different pastures and some cross fencing. That was a big plus to me starting out. And I tell people, Take advantage of those programs if they help move you in the right direction, but don't let them become an entitlement. You know, why should I now, we make very good money farming and ranching, why should I take those and then that money not go to a beginner farmer or a person who's disadvantaged? Let them have the same opportunities that I had. It really bothers me, you know, I'm up 60 years of age, how I see a lot of other farmers and ranchers my age who certainly have some means, but boy, they're right there taking every penny they can. And I'm sorry, I just call them out. I think that's terrible, but that's for each person to decide. They have to decide, look in the mirror and decide for themselves. Right, right, yeah. Well, one of the things that you mentioned um, that was really interesting to me, very intriguing, you mentioned that you currently produce 30 times as much nutrient-dense food as you were before adopting regenerative practices. Mm -hmm. So um, can you just yep. kind of give us an idea yep. of how that Sure, and, and I'm often questioned on that, and I can see why it brings into question. But here's what I tell people, because of our soil health, our yields, they're not the highest in the county, but we average for most of the crops roughly 25 to 30% higher than average in the county, oh. just from a yield standpoint. Mm -hmm. Okay, but the difference lies in that they're only producing one crop on any given acre here in North Dakota. You know, there, there's nobody really double cropping in North Dakota. Okay. Well, not I not only grow that cash crop, at a higher yield than average in the county. But then we integrate grass-finished beef, we got pastured hogs, we got a sheep operation, we have bees and we raise honey, you know, I grow vegetables. We have all these other species and stack these enterprises 
And then also we're growing instead of commodity crops, I haven't hauled grain to a grain terminal in years. We're adding value and selling them as seed or selling them as, as a non-GMO uh, feed, you know, adding value. Mm-hmm. And then when you get looking at the nutrient density of the products, and we do quite a bit of testing on the grains, on the proteins that we raise on this farm, we're able to prove that they're significantly higher in nutrient density of all these phytochemical compounds. And that's really what drives human health. And then you have to have the ability to be able to market that. And I tell people, you know, farmers and ranchers, we are really in the business of providing nutrition. Yet how many farmers and ranchers test their grains? Oh, they test them for protein or test them for test weight per bushel. But can you tell me the omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acid profile and, you know, all these other nutrients that are in your grains? Well, if you're raising food, you certainly should be able to. Ah, uh Okay. This is fascinating to me. Can you just give me one example? Sure. Let's talk about omega-6 to 3 ratio, okay? Because most people are familiar with that. Omega-3, you need them both, but... The problem lies, our human body needs an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of approximately three to one, okay, somewhere around there. Well, in the average human diet in the United States right now, it's running between 19 to one and 20 to one, okay, way out of balance. Okay, the beef that's being produced today, average beef that's in a confinement operation, so fed grains or distiller's grain, etc. Grains will average between 12 to 1 and 15 to 1, okay? Mm-hmm. So pretty far out of whack. Mm-hmm. Then if that beef was fed distiller's grain, we've got tests that show as high as 55 to 1, Ooh. omega-6 to 3. As, as opposed to the grass-fed beef we produce on our ranch, over the last four years, we've been averaging... 1.3 to one or less. So we're effectively producing uh, grass-finished beef that has the omega-3 ratios that will rival wild salmon. Okay, that truly is a product we can sell as heart healthy. Mm-hmm. And we have the proof to show that. So that, that's one example of what can be done. Mm-hmm. The, another example would be look at corn that's produced today. The average corn produced today has a protein content of around 5%, okay? Uh, The samples we tested from this past year, we were averaging a little over 11% crude protein. Tremendous amount of difference, you know? Right. And that all comes about from healthy soils. So asking what the answer is to get you there, that's, that's not an easy, it's not an easy thing. That's a years of transition and, and work. Yes, but what we've found is that, you know, we call it there's six principles to a healthy soil ecosystem and realize it took me a lot of years to get our ranch where it is and we're still improving. We're not where we want to be. We have a long way to go. But in knowing these principles now, I've seen people make as much headway in five years as I did in 20 years. And Usually you can make within three years, we can see significant differences to the soil, the ability to infiltrate water, the ability to move that water throughout the soil profile, the ability of the biology in the soil to cycle some of those organic forms of nutrients that are in the soil. Typically with our clients, we're able to save them money the very first year because we do proper soil testing and realize that the vast majority of farmers and ranchers are grossly over-fertilizing. They're putting on way too much. And, and it's, we've proven it's in the soil already. You're just lacking biology. Well, the only way you're going to proliferate biology, you have to wean that soil off of these synthetics. I'm not saying totally, but at least cut back. And so because of that, we're able to increase profitability almost from day one. Mm-hmm. That, that puts more dollars in farmers pockets and what's wrong with that 
We'll get back to the conversation with Gabe Brown in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Gabe Brown as he talks about beneficial insects and why he hasn't used an insecticide on his farm since before the turn of the century. So on your own operation, I know that you have not used insecticides or fungicides in many years. Um, Mm -hmm. And what is your philosophy on uh, fertilizers and herbicides? Mm -hmm. Yep. So we haven't used any fertilizer besides what falls out of the back end of an animal since 2007. Okay. Besides seed treatment on corn, which we discontinued in 2010, we haven't used any insecticides since before the turn of the century. I've never used fungicides, just no no need for that. I occasionally use a herbicide, but it's not very often, you know? And if I really put my mind to it, we could do away with that also. Mm -hmm. But our customers, it just doesn't matter if we do or not. You know, they they see the difference in the products we grow and raise and and, uh, they're willing to to tolerate that herbicide use. What we find out is, for instance, let's take herbicide with weeds. Well, weeds are high nitrate users. As you learn how soil functions and you convert that from nitrate to ammonium, you're gonna have less weed pressure. Mm -hmm. So then you need less herbicide. Uh As you increase the biology, you're gonna have more predator insects. You know, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren years ago taught me that for every insect species that's a pest, there's 1,700 that are beneficial. So why are we out there trying to kill a pest? Why not just proliferate, provide the home and habitat for all the beneficials that it eat that pest? I never worry about pests because we have the predator insects that'll take care of them. Mm -hmm. And he's proven that over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And are you, for your corn, for instance, are you growing non-GMO? Yes. As a matter of fact, we... I I like working on things that challenge me. So for the last number of years, I've been developing my own open pollinated corn variety. And so, um, you know how much easier it is just to take corn out of a bin and plant it. And and it's working very well in my environment. I've been developing a barley variety that'll overwinter in North Dakota. I've done it three years in a row successfully. So we fall plant it. And then uh, that allows me to combine it earlier the next summer. That allows me a longer window of time to plant a cover crop, collect more sunlight. Things like that challenge me. And so I enjoy working with those type of things. Oh, that's really cool. So when you're talking about biology, soil biology, um, I believe you're a strong believer in the Haney test. Mm-hmm. So just wondering, what do you like about the test? And then if people are getting that test and they're looking to be increasing their biology, what should they be looking for? Sure, sure. I am. The reason, number of reasons I'm such a proponent of Dr. Haney's work is, number one, it works and it'll help us increase profitability for our clients faster. What we look at in that test is the amount, the CO2 burst, the amount of life in the soil. You know, they have to have enough carbon in the soil, food for biology, water extractable organic carbon. A lot of um, agronomists will look at the organic matter levels in the soil. Well, organic matter is kind of like the house that the biology lives in. But water extractable organic carbon, that's the refrigerator in that house. How much food is there? And once you know how much biology, how much food, then you're able to tell, okay, we've got biology. Now we can start cutting back on these synthetics. Now you have to have the predator insects to eat the bacteria to start the nutrient cycle. Mm -hmm. That's where it comes to education, though. And 
you know, I went through four years of college, took soils class. I don't ever remember that. Maybe I don't think I missed that day. I didn't miss many days, but they didn't talk about protozoa and nematodes and fungal components. And you need to know these things if you're a farmer rancher, because it directly affects your pocketbook. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So um, what about the whole class of products called biologicals? Is that something Mm -hmm. that you do anything with? Are you interested in that at all? Yeah. Realize, I tell people, when, when I went through my four years of hail and drought, I was in a church mouse, I couldn't afford any of those. So I had to come by all that the hard way. I am in no way belittling the use of those products, but I'll never forget what Dr. Chris Nichols told me. Dr. Chris Nichols is a world famous soil microbiologist. And when uh, they first come out with some of these products that were promoting mycorrhizal fungi, I asked her about it. And she said, Gabe, there's 175,000 known species of mycorrhizal fungi. Oh. What do you suppose the two they put in that jug are the two you need? Yeah. And that kind of answered that question. <laughs> now, my business partner, Dr. Ellen Williams, has done extensive work with soil biologics and for many years. And what he found was that uh, usually if they got a boost in production, it was because of the carbon carrier. The uh-huh. carbon carrier they were using for the biologics was feeding the biology you already have in your soils, and that gave a boost to production. Uh-huh. So I tell people, I'm not saying don't use them, but certainly do a trial. So then you know, did it pay or not? Mm-hmm. And that's the way it is with all of these products. Farmers and ranchers are not very good at trying these things. You need to try and really find out, did it or did it not increase profitability on your operation? Okay, so I wanted to just go back to one of the things that you were talking about in your testimony, which was uh, creating standards for regenerative ag. I believe you were saying the standards already exist, or maybe I misunderstood what you said. I guess I was just wondering if you could talk about that. Mm -hmm. No, the standards don't exist with the exception of the regenerative organic certification. Okay, I see. One of the things I'm really a believer in, though, is that regenerative ag is a journey, okay? It's not a destination. And I tell people, you know, I'm on hundreds of farms and ranches every year. I've traveled extensively around the world. I have never been on a single farm or ranch, including my own. That's not degraded. So we're not going to get there in our lifetime, you know, depending on. So what is regenerative ag? The question, the answer then becomes, well, are we moving in a positive direction? Are we adopting the six soil health principles? Are we paying attention to the four ecosystem processes? Are we moving our farm or ranch in that direction? So we're actually... Uh, working on that right now. How, because we're getting a lot of companies that are coming to us saying, okay, you're some of the leading experts in the field on regenerative ag. How do we define this? You know, they're hearing from consumers, they want to purchase products that are grown and raised regeneratively. Okay, how do you determine that? Well, as a matter of fact, we were just working on this as a team this morning of defining those practices. And what we want is something that's fluid because as science develops, you know, there's some really good people out there like Dr. Jason Roundtree at Michigan State who is doing some phenomenal work with measuring carbon. And we need to have the ability to to move forward and to make sure not only the farmer rancher, but these companies who are sourcing those products are moving forward. So we look at as, as that. Are you following those six principles? Are you moving your farm or ranch forward in your context? Because that's going to be different, a little bit different for every region of the country, for your climate, for the products you're growing, etc. Mm-hmm. So I just don't want to see it be a label that's, you know, just on a package. It needs to be tailored fairly specifically to the particular situation. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, just so we don't want to send people off to look this up, but would you just go through those six principles of ag sure. and then the four ecosystem sure. processes sure. you're talking about? So, so the six principles we always talk about are number one, context. Are you farming and ranching in context? And I tell people this. So I was in Manning, Alberta uh, a year ago before COVID hit, and they were trying to grow soybeans. I mean, this, you fly into Edmonton and you drive for a day and you're in Manning, Alberta. Okay, that's out of context. The soybeans are a warm season broadly, shouldn't be growing there. We got a farm and ranch in context. Second principle is least amount of mechanical chemical disturbance possible. You know, nature tills with earthworms and burrowing rodents, but she certainly doesn't take a plow and turn the soil upside down. We need to we need to minimize that. Chemicals, we're overusing chemicals. We, we know that, we need to minimize it, okay? Next principle is armor on the soil. Is the soil protected? Because if not, it's prone to wind erosion, water erosion, evaporation. You know, we don't wanna see that. It's, it's shameful for me to see how much soil is lost because it's not covered and we have wind erosion and the thickness of a sheet of paper is equivalent to one ton of topsoil per acre. Think about that, okay? <laughs> the next principle is diversity. Nature doesn't farm with monocultures. Go walk into any forest, any prairie, it's very diverse. Yet what do we do? We try and plant just monocultures. And this is, I, I pounded on RMA a little bit, they need to be realize that the plant will be much healthier if you have a diverse plant community. So how do you do that? Well, I grow oats with clover growing underneath it. I can still combine my oats, clovers adding diversity, supplying nitrogen to the clover plants. I can grow corn with cover crops growing underneath, sunflowers. You can still add diversity without, you know, interfering with your combine and your harvesting. Mm -hmm. So then the next principle is living root in the soil as long as possible throughout the year. And that, of course, is, that's one of the reasons climate change, why we have too much carbon in the atmosphere, not enough in the soil. We have to have living plants to take carbon out of the atmosphere. Yet, as I said earlier, you fly over this country and, and what do you see? You, you see bare so, you know, crop fields where only a cash crop was grown for 100 or 120 days a year. Well, what happens to the remainder of the year? There's not, nothing growing to take that carbon out of the atmosphere. And the final principle is livestock integration. You know, you have to have animals on the landscape. I said livestock, but animal integration. You know, nature doesn't operate properly without animals and insects. One of the reasons we have so many pests is because we don't have a habitat for the predator insects. We need animals back grazing on the landscape. When a plant is grazed, it takes more carbon out of the atmosphere then and creates a healthy ecosystem. And then the four ecosystem processes tie right off, off that. It's, it's the water cycle, the nutrient cycle, community dynamics, diversity. You need all of those cycles working properly, you know, in order to feed the system. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another thing you mentioned in your testimony, you mentioned the PRIME Act. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you would talk a little bit about that and why it's important. What I was specifically getting at there was not so much that piece of legislation itself, although it is important, but we society, the policymakers have put a burden on farmers and ranchers who grow food. Okay. An individual consumer should have the right to purchase from whom they want and consume that. But look what happened. This was kind of exemplified and shown the point during the pandemic. All of a sudden, store shelves were empty. Right. I mean, look at the amount of food we produce in this country. It's staggering. Yet we didn't have the food locally to fill those shelves. If a consumer wants to buy meat or vegetables from any farmer or rancher, they should have the right to do so. Instead, 
policymakers think that it all has to be inspected and you need all of these rules and regulations and they they cite E. coli. Oh, look out, we're going to have E. coli. Tell me the number of E. coli cases that have come from a grass-based operation. Okay, next to none, right? <laughs> yep. How many, how much E. coli has there been or disease from, from pastured land hens? Name me a case. You know, it just doesn't happen. If, and we, we direct market on our ranch, all the products we grow and raise. If I'm not careful and don't do a good job, I'm going to be out of business immediately, you know, because word travels. So I'm going to take more care. So why do policymakers insist on being so burdensome to us? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. So that's specifically what I was getting at. We need to get our food systems back local so consumers can buy local. And the other thing that nobody takes into consideration, the the best way to ensure human health is to buy and source locally because the biology and the soil that ends up then producing all these phytonutrients are best sourced locally. And, and then the people living there will have that to feed their microorganisms. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm sitting here thinking that uh, all of this local food could be more expensive. But on the other hand, if you don't have all the regulation and everything yeah. that you have to go through, then maybe it wouldn't be. I need to address that, though. Okay. Because <laughs> I heard that uh, in Congress, they had the opportunity to ask me questions that wasn't on air, just through written uh, emails and that. And I kept hearing, oh, people can't afford regenerative. Okay, last for over the last 13 years, since I quit uh, using synthetics, my cost to produce a bushel of corn is $1.44. Okay, mm-hmm. $1.44. Name me many farmers in the country who can produce corn that cheap. See, because think of it. I don't have the chemical inputs. I don't have the fertilizers. I can produce it cheap. Now, I'm a capitalist. That doesn't mean I have to sell it that cheap because of supply and demand, right? So I don't buy this for a second. What we're finding with the farmers and ranchers we consult with, when you go down the regenerative path, because you're working with nature instead of against her, your input costs decrease substantially. Mm-hmm. So you're actually producing food at a much lower cost. Now, because of supply and demand, we're able to charge more. But as more and more people go down this path, the price will correct, so to speak, you know, and, and come down. Sure. So I, I don't buy that for a second that's more expensive. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you mentioned um, that you are always looking to do new things. So what is next on your list? Mm-hmm. What do you want to tackle next? Yeah, so so from a business standpoint, understanding ag is working on just what you asked the question about, about regenerative verification. Okay. That is a major Uh, project for us. I'm also pleased to announce that we're heavily involved in a movie that will be coming out in two years. Uh, We haven't decided on a a title of that movie, but it's going to be something like Common Ground, where where how do we bring society together for the 80% of the things we can agree on, and how agriculture you know, agriculture built this country. It's going to save this country. We have some serious problems in this country today and around the world. Problems with clean air, clean water, you know, too much carbon in the atmosphere, human health. Okay, that movie's going to center on that. And we're also writing another book that that book will be um, addressing that topic. How do we bring society together? using regenerative ag as the conduit. So those are just a few things. Ah, nice. (laughs) Well, you have been busy. In the last couple of years, you wrote the book, Dirt to Soil, in which you talked about your experience of adopting regenerative techniques. Uh, You were featured in the documentary, Kiss the Ground. 
Uh, you're doing a lot of, obviously, education with Understanding Ag and the Soil Health Academy. And you're basically recognized as one of the leaders of the regenerative ag movement. So it seems like a great time to be Gabe Brown. <laughs> well, yeah, my, my life's a little bit hectic. 280 <laughs> plus days on the road every year, <laughs> 200 plus flights. But, but you know what? I saw the difference that regenerative agriculture made for myself and my family and how profitable it is and i just want to share that yeah i just want to help all farmers and ranchers to to realize the freedom the resiliency that regenerative ag brings and and to be able able to enjoy life i i don't see that as much in farming and ranching today and i want them to be able to bring the next generation and generations after that onto their operations mm -hmm. i think that's a good thing yeah. Well, I definitely do hear a lot of people saying that when they uh, incorporate these techniques, that farming becomes fun again. That's right. The thing that's hardest for us to convey and get across is I always share the quote I heard from Don Campbell, the rancher in Alberta. If you want to make small changes, change the way you do things. But if you want to make major changes, change the way you see things. And I think we've lost that power of observation in agriculture. I did a webinar here a month ago on how when I walk out into a field, if I see a quote unquote weed growing, I don't just go spray it, kill it. No, I wanna know what is that weed telling me? You know, like if it's a dandelion, it's telling me I'm short of calcium and it's, it's there to cycle calcium. You know, if I see a pest, what's that pest telling me? If you have too many grasshoppers, well, that tells you you had bare ground because grasshoppers need bare ground in order to lay their eggs. But we've lost that type of power of observation. You know, I, I always tell people I, I used to wake up every morning trying to decide what I was going to kill that day, a weed, a pest, a fungus. Now I wake up, how do I get more life on my ranch? And it's much more enjoyable, much more profitable working with life than it is with death. Are there any resources that uh, you'd like to recommend for people who are interested in developing that power of observation? They can go on our Understanding Ag website or our Soil Health Academy website, and we have a resource page there. We have a lot of webinars from leading authorities on different topics that are free to, to view, and we always welcome people to come and learn. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, I guess one final question that I'd like to ask, uh, there's a lot of interest in carbon programs these mm -hmm. days, carbon sequestration programs. Uh, are there any that you are particularly interested in or that you think are doing a particularly good job of, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, fairly working with farmers as well mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, the environment? Yeah, great question. And you know, I was involved in one of the earlier carbon programs with uh, Farmers Union here in North Dakota. And the thing we saw with that is you were paid like just for a practice. Like if you were a no-till crop farmer, you got paid one rate. If you, at that time, I had over a hundred different pastures on my ranch and I was moving cattle every day. Mm -hmm. I got paid the same as somebody who only moved them four times a year. <laughs> The problem with the carbon program right now, there's a couple of them. Number one, how are you going to accurately measure it at a price point that is not burdensome to the landowner? We spent $170,000 to measure carbon on 600 acres of my land. And when we were done with that project, we realized that it's inconclusive because my soil health now, I'm storing carbon deeper than the four foot that we measured down to the four foot depth. So that is a challenge right now. Dr. Jason Roundtree at Michigan State, him and his team are working on it. Uh, I just had a conversation two weeks ago with a team in Australia that thinks they'll have that cost down to about $6 per acre uh, by the end of 2021. So that would be a good thing. And it, it's gonna be a combination of satellite imagery uh, uh, comparing biomass production with truthing on the ground. So at this point in time, I do not recommend anybody sell their carbon credits because it, it's just not time yet. Yeah. The other thing we really need to see is what's the true value of carbon? 
You know, today there's a lot of talk, 15 to $20 per acre, okay? On our ranch, we have documented, we've sequestered between 326 and 528 metric ton equivalent of CO2 per acre, okay? Well, now at 15 to $20 an acre, that still adds up to a lot of money, but it adds up with a lot more at 50 to 100. Okay. And I think you compare it to the price of oil and do the math. You know, carbon should be really, if you compare it to the carbon in oil, it should be worth about 20 cents a pound. Okay. So, so we should be talking about a multiple of $400 per ton. So we need to think about that. And the other problem is the way most of the carbon programs are set up now, farmers don't get paid to the back end. And then it's a very small percentage, like maybe they're getting 10 to 20%. That's not enough. The farmer's doing the work that they need to be paid for. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Very good. Well, Gabe, this has been really, really interesting. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you would like to share before I let you go? All I want to do is encourage people, don't stop learning. Always take the opportunity, have an open mind, and and let's all work together on the 80% of the things we can agree on. It's been a real pleasure being with you today. Thanks to North Dakota rancher and no-tiller Gabe Brown for this conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.